Hey friends, I'm Christine Chappell, and you're listening to the Hope and Help podcast from IBCD, where we host biblical conversations about life's challenging problems. This episode features a recent broadcast of Hope and Help Live, a periodic segment of the podcast that features live recorded interviews previously streamed on Facebook. Today's conversation features Chris Moles, Joy Forrest, and Anne-Marie Goudsward on the topic of domestic abuse care in our coronavirus context. For more help on the topics we discussed today, visit ibcd.org forward slash hope and help, where you can access notes from today's episode and browse related resources from our digital library. Before we get started, let me introduce you to our guests. Reverend Chris Moles is an ordained minister with the Christian and Missionary Alliance and senior pastor of the chapel in Winfield, West Virginia. Chris is a certified biblical counselor and a trained group facilitator in domestic violence intervention and prevention, as well as the author of The Heart of Domestic Abuse, Gospel Solutions for Men Who Use Violence and Control in the Home. Joy has been an advocate for victims of domestic violence since 1977 and is the author of Called to Peace, a survivor's guide to finding peace and healing after domestic abuse. She holds an MA in Biblical Counseling from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary and is a certified advocate with the North Carolina Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Joy is the founder of Called to Peace Ministries, an organization that provides education to those interested in learning effective strategies for dealing with family violence, as well as practical assistance for those affected by it. Anne-Marie Goudsward serves her home church, Christ Covenant, in Matthews, North Carolina, counseling those in need and training in one another care. She is the co-author of Help Her, a church-wide response for women in crisis. Anne-Marie is a biblical counselor, has an MDiv with a counseling emphasis from Reformed Theological Seminary, Charlotte, and is a DMIN candidate at RPTS. She is married to Bob, a mother of three, and grandmother to 11. Awesome. Well, I think we have a lot to go over tonight. I'm really excited about this conversation. And so I think we're going to go ahead and just lead off with a question for Joy as she drinks her water. (laughs) Before we get started on some of the counseling and one another care particulars, can you help us to have an understanding of why it's so dangerous right now? What are abuse victims experiencing? What is their world like that we need to be mindful of? Well, we're getting all sorts of um, feedback about it. We have an online private support group, actually secret support group, and we're getting all sorts of stories coming out. One thing we know is that when abusive people are under pressure, they tend to take the stress out on whoever's closest. And so when they're stuck at home together, it really makes things hard, uh, much harder. And, you know, at least they can have the reprieve of them going to work uh, in a normal time. But a lot of these guys are stuck at home with their wives and children. And so I see a lot of them going outside and spending a lot of time outside with the kids. Um, they're trying the, their very best to maintain peace in the midst of some hard times. It can make it a lot worse if they're still in the situation. It can make it a lot worse if they're out of the situation because a lot of the guys that we're hearing about are using COVID as a weapon. So how do they do that? For example, some of the women that we work with have some serious health conditions. They are, you know, immune compromised. And so these guys will actually go out and purposely expose their kids, let them play anywhere, everywhere, so that they can go back and bring the disease back to her. 
we are just seeing a myriad of different things that they can do to use COVID to their advantage. The courts are closed down. So the only thing the courts are open for right now are emergency restraining orders. And they'll do the 10-day one here in North Carolina. We have a 10-day. So whether they're going to say yes or no to that restraining order, but everything else is put on hold. So I have a, one of the ladies in my group today saying, you know, I, he violated the restraining order. He should be in jail and I'm scared and courts closed until June at least. And then there's going to be this backlog of all the cases they haven't gotten to before, uh, you know, they closed it, you know, since they've closed down. So, you know, we see it in, in so many ways and I'm probably just um, scratching the surface. So many of the women that we work with were you know, stay at home, homeschool moms. So the only jobs they could get were hourly wage jobs. And so many of them have been laid off or not able to work right now. So we are seeing a lot of that as well. So a lot of financial hardship. Chris, I also was curious because, you know, when we think about domestic abuse or domestic violence, I think more often than not, perhaps we're thinking of the context of a marriage relationship. But, you know, I think what's been concerning is just the chatter about how children are now also, you know, because they don't have that out of going to school where, you know, maybe going to school was their safe out of the house, you get away from the situation. And now I know I've heard from friends who are teachers who are just heartbroken that they're not able to see those kids every day and that they know that maybe there's a high risk situation and they feel like there's nothing that they can really do. So I guess domestic abuse in that case is, I think you've used the words before, a tricky diagnostic issue. So what about child abuse in this context? How do we as people helpers or church leaders even begin to think about protecting vulnerable children who may be witnessing abuse or experiencing abuse themselves when we can't even access them on a regular basis? Yes, I mean, that's really the key issue, isn't it? I mean, when when a child is going to disclose abuse or if abuse is going to be uncovered, it usually occurs in a safe context like school or if our church is equipped like church. It's usually a third party that uncovers or discovers uh, and reports child abuse or neglect because we're not privy to what's happening in the home. So what's happened during this time is in homes where children are essentially already vulnerable, we've simply removed, for lack of a better word, the access to mandated reporters and people that are have, have the child's best interests in heart. Now, when it comes to witnessing domestic abuse, sometimes we will be dismissive of that or we'll minimize that. I know the courts do, quite frankly. It doesn't seem to be a significant realization, but, but children who witness domestic abuse, even if they're not the target, suffer many of the same sociological uh, and symptomological conditions that children who are targets. And we can even see that in biblical counseling. If you've counseled with adults, say, who present with eating disorders or obsessive compulsive disorders, and you've pulled the rope and, and really found the underlying or contributor contributing cause, you may discover past trauma associated with abuse, it's such a such a significant reality that mimics itself so many different ways and presents itself in so many different ways. And for the children who are being exposed to domestic violence, many of them are experiencing symptoms very similar to their counterparts who are victims of abuse. And the problem is still the same: who is aware, right? And if if they are aware, do they have the ability to report? or to get help. And the reality is if the only people that are aware 
and available or in the home, then they're probably not safe to seek help for the child. So in many ways, children in these scenarios are either left to their own devices or they're just going to be, unfortunately, without <laughs> help or hope uh, during the current crisis. Yeah, it's such a hard thing to think about. You know, if we have to sit in that tension of there's nothing that maybe can be done today to help these families or that child because that mandated reporter has been removed from their daily lives. What should we be doing with our time? You know, what can we be doing to prepare ourselves for the future to maybe, okay, well, we know that maybe we can't be a help right now, but, you know, the ripple effects of coronavirus and pandemic and all of these things going on, we haven't even begun to see, you know, there's going to be long lasting effects. And so how can we as Christians, as church leaders, whatever capacity you find yourself in, how can we prepare to rise up to help when the opportunities arise, when the doors open and we're able to meet and have access to people? And Marie, the resource helper, the book that you wrote or co-authored is, I think, targets that. I wonder if you might share a little bit from your experience and from the book that you wrote, because as domestic abuse awareness becomes more prevalent in the church, more people are finding they want to help, but they're not sure about the best way to go about serving women in crisis. Can you list some practical things that they can do to begin to equip themselves to minister to vulnerable women in their congregation? Yeah, I, I, when I wrote the book too, I, I said this, that um, I think women are natural empathizers with other women. We may not have had the same experience. I did not have an abusive marriage like Joy had. Um, but when she talks about it, and I think you just did it a few minutes ago, Christine, when, when she talks about something, my heart immediately connects to her, and I automatically want to help in some way. So what can you do now? I think the best thing you can do right now is educate yourself. Find out what domestic abuse looks like. See how women who have been traumatized respond. The crazy thing is that week or two before the um, lockdown here where I live, I had three new cases and I can't talk to any of them right now. So I'm, I'm frustrated and lost. But one of the other things that I've been doing though, is I've been interviewing past victims, survivors now, and I've been asking them as many questions as I possibly can so that I can help. Or is there a way to help right now in this lockdown? But churches, I call, I call women in churches essential workers for domestic abuse. Women will probably go to their pastor primarily to report the abuse, but there will be a limit to what she will report as a male talking to a man for two things, two reasons. And you guys correct me if I'm wrong here, but one, because the person who's hurting her the most is a man. So that makes it hard to talk to another man. Um, but also some of the things that that husband may be doing in the home are so shaming to her that she won't reveal that to a man. And maybe sometimes it's not even appropriate to reveal that to a man. So that's why I say women helpers are just, they're essential workers. So for pastors, just starting to think through what does it look like for me to engage some wise, seasoned women who can help me and Chris talks about this so well, a, a team approach so important to domestic abuse. How can I raise up some wise, seasoned women that can help me uh, minister to these hurting women and children? Yeah, I think that's just a really great point that you made about trying to build a team 
I was watching the IBCD observation videos on domestic abuse earlier today in preparation for this conversation. And you guys did mention how valuable it is to have a team approach to domestic abuse care. You know, we need multiple sets of eyes. And Joy even mentioned in the video that there's wisdom in a, in a number of counselors. And so my own inclination personally is, oh my gosh, I, I wish this suffering wasn't happening. What can I do to help? And then that, you know, immediately you get that sense of helplessness, like, oh, there's nothing for me to do. And I love how Anne-Marie and all of you guys are basically saying, no, there is. And it's preparation for the future. Right. You know, you may not be able to step into someone's situation right now, but if you've got a pull on your heart for this issue, the church needs you. And there are women and children out there, families, and sometimes even men who need you um, to step up and to get equipped to address this in the context of the local church. Uh, Joy, I wonder if you could speak to us. There was a point you made yesterday in the email exchange that we had that I thought was really important, and I wanted to be sure that we spoke about it here. Uh, talk to us about the high-risk nature of communication with women in abusive situations presently. How has that changed now because of the context that we find ourselves in, in terms of not being able to meet face-to-face -face and you know there are shelter-in-place orders? And so how can we be communicating with women who are in crisis, but also still mindful of some of the safety precautions or the dangers that may come from her even communicating outside of her home? Right. So I think that you really have to have a good idea of what the situation is. As Anne-Marie is saying, she can't be in touch with these folks because you don't know if you send a text message, if, if, if he will see it. And, and it may be, you know, a very innocent text. How are you doing? But, you know, it could, it could cause an interrogation. <laughs> it could be, uh, it could set something off. So you want to be very wise and you don't want to be reaching out to somebody. Oh, I'm so worried about them. I need to go in and rescue really good advocates. Most of the time that we, we have either made some kind of, uh, we've talked about how, what's the best way to communicate with you. And, and a lot of times it's just not safe to communicate when we know that he, you know, the partner is at home. So you have to be aware of that and just take precautions. One of the things that we kind of recommend in our advocacy courses is waiting for them to reach out to you and letting them know that you're available, you know, as much as you possibly can be with limits, but just being yeah, available. I've, I've been asking friends to ask them, people who wouldn't be suspicious. Right. So yeah, anything I can do to get at them really. <laughs> you know, what's, what's interesting about this work and, and Joy could probably speak to this as well. What's interesting about this work is when we do find an effective strategy, one of the most difficult things to do is keep it effective by in forums like this, not telling you what we do. <laughs> because quite frankly, we've seen it over time. I don't know if Joy's seen it. I know we had an instance not too many years ago where shoe cards were a big thing for victims. It was a card that would go inside the, under the sole of mm -hmm. your shoe and it would have all your emergency contact information. And there were stories of news reporters doing stories about it because it was a fascinating story. Well, all that did was inform every abuser in the county yeah. in the region of where to look. Mm -hmm. So some of the most effective strategies uh, are the most subtle and are the most simple, whether it is how you communicate in a women's prayer group or how you operate on your neighborhood walks, even if you're social distancing. So there are effective ways. It's just going to be personalized, I think, for each individual, because once you get a uniform policy, then some of the effectiveness has worn off. That's a really yeah. good point. Henry, do you have more to add? 
No, I was just thinking of not necessarily the women who I already know I need to work with, but finding out from those who I'm suspicious about and just kind of conversations that might lead to information. For instance, sharing. I mean, one of the one of the things I hear all the time is I feel like I'm walking on eggshells. So just to dive into that a little bit deeper or to bring up a situation in my home where it was a difficult evening with getting the kids to bed and getting their schoolwork done and just going on about that, but then saying, what does an evening in your household look like? And not that she would necessarily share, but conversations that lead to more information, I guess. Yeah, those are really good points to consider as well. Chris, as I have taken a dive into the IBCD domestic abuse observation videos and handbook, and I keep mentioning that because it is a fantastic resource. And I noticed that, and you actually even addressed, I think too, in a recent live video that you did, there seems to be sometimes confusion about the best way for church leaders or counselors to approach suspected abuse situations. And almost like, they treat it as though this is a situation that is in need of marriage counseling. And it didn't seem like the way that you presented it, that that's always the wisest way to address the situation. So I wonder, because some of us maybe, like Anne-Marie said, we're suspecting, we're hearing some things, and maybe in our conversation with people, we're like, well, this is, you know, they have some conflicts. It's not really like any anything other than like a normal type of relational concern. They just need some marriage counseling. Is that the wisest way to view that? Type of situation? So I, I would I would highly suggest that viewing uh, abuse care from a marriage counseling perspective is the most foolish thing we can do, actually. And we're we're really not caring for the individuals by promoting marriage-focused solutions. And what I'm getting at there is we're just shooting at the wrong target. Domestic abuse is not a marriage problem. Marriage problems require mutuality, it requires a starting point in which both parties have freedom, they have a say. Conflict is quite different than oppression. And so in domestic abuse, we're talking about one person using power over another. Now we've also mentioned the inclusion of the children or other dependents, there's collateral damage. But in our world, we're talking about an individual, usually a man, uh, using power <laughs> over their partner, demeaning, diminishing, coercing, and controlling. That would not be uh, marriage-related, and throwing marriage-focused solutions at it are actually going to exacerbate the problem. As in marriage counseling, you can't take sides. That's one thing. Marriage counselors don't take sides. I take sides. Uh, I'll even tell my trainees, people I'm training, I don't, I don't take his side or her side. I take God's side, and God is very clear. He sides with the oppressed and the vulnerable. So I, I pick sides pretty quick. Uh, the second thing is you have to remain neutral. And in this work, you can't remain neutral. You have to address sin and address suffering with very stark contrast. In order to do that, I recommend parallel tracks of care. That doesn't mean we're abandoning marriage. It doesn't mean that we dislike marriage. I actually think you create an environment where marriage is doomed if you do marriage counseling in cases of abuse because you're not restoring a marriage you're trying to restore individuals to their only place of hope, and that's Jesus Christ. For the perpetrator, through the repentance of sin and transformation at the level of the heart, for the victim, care and comfort and restoration uh, as well. So that would be my quick Reader's Digest version of please don't do marriage counseling. 
when abuse is disclosed or suspected. You know, I, I jotted down too in the IBCD notes um, as I was watching the videos, you guys spoke about a counterintuitive approach to care, especially mm -hmm. for the perpetrators. And even the term perpetrators for some of who are watching that you may not, what does that even mean? I don't think I had that word in my vocabulary until I started getting involved with um, just watching your guys's observation videos. So uh, Chris, maybe if you don't mind maybe unpacking that since that's kind of in your camp, what does that look like? It's the counterintuitive approach to compassionate care. I think you were talking in terms of that tension between wanting to have that pastorly heart for the perpetrator man you know he, this guy he's in some way he's suffering and struggling in his own heart issues but at the same time needing to have a counterintuitive approach to that which is really like we need to address the sin head on and the repentance piece so i would actually call the counterintuitive approach the biblical approach uh, <laughs> but i think in many ways it's been lost, quite frankly. I was just having this conversation with some men not long ago who identify as abusive, and we were talking about how many of our views in Western Christianity reflect a kingdom of the world and not the kingdom of God. How we view power, how we view position, how we view authority. And then I think the church has done this as well in how we view justice. And so I think one thing that's counterintuitive in working with uh, offenders and perpetrators is I've heard many pastors use the bully the bully strategy, which is I take the biggest, baddest deacons I got and I go scare that guy. Well, really, what are you doing except affirming his worldview? That if I'm bigger and stronger and meaner, I get my way. And really, what is confrontational ministry? Which is this is what we're talking about, saying hard things to call sinners to repentance. Confrontational ministry is laid out in Galatians chapter six. Brothers, if any of you is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual, that's the mature, restore such a one, do it with all gentleness. So one of the key, the key frameworks is that we're restorative people with gentle demeanors, winsome ways, but we say hard things because the passage goes on to say, God will not be mocked, right? A man will reap what he sows. The consequences uh, are going to happen. I tell guys all the time, you can choose your sin, but you can't choose your consequences. I am not going to stand in the way of consequences. I am not going to say easy things. I'm going to say hard things, but I don't have to be a jerk. You know, I get to say them in winsome ways. And I think what happens is you, in doing so, you give offenders a very clear decision. Will you follow after Jesus through actual repentance? And we can talk about that in a moment. Or will you continue to reject the truth? This is not a fight between me and you. This is a clear fight between you and God. What are you going to do with it? And I think that rather than struggling with men and fighting with men, or to your point, having some kind of long suffering that says, we're going to patiently wait with you to repent, which also is just as bad of a ditch. Because I've seen churches try to engage batterers and abusers for two, three, four years. He's not repentant. If it's taking you two, three, four years to come to the same conclusions, then go ahead and practice church discipline to its fullest extent and care for the victim. Can, can I say that so bluntly? I mean, that, I think that's part of our problem is we're not speaking truth gently and effectively. We're either passive or we're aggressive. And those are both worldly alternatives to the biblical approach, which is restorative.
the two terms that came to mind, I, I think I pulled from the videos or from your open door at four lives that you do twice a month, I believe on your PeaceWorks Facebook page, which is an amazing resource. And I'll have Chris talk a little about that at the end of the conversation, but that, you know, our approach to domestic abuse care should be Christ centered and victim focused. Focused. I got it. Yes. I didn't even write that down. See, but it, it already lodged in there. And so I really liked the way that you put that. And I think that's what you were uh, just describing right now. And Marie, I would like to ask, how are you needing to pivot in your practice in order to remain supportive? You know, we talked about different ways that you're trying to communicate, but I think you sent a list of ideas yesterday that I thought were helpful just in terms of other ways you might be able to support um, maybe not being face-to-face, -face, but through other means? Well, and I think some of these were on um, Jonathan Holmes, and I think her name is Melissa something, did an article on um, ERLC this past week about um, some of these very same things, but um, what can you be doing now? So I, I write, I can be writing. I can be writing blogs about abuse. Is that something that you have a knack for that you could research and, and write some good informative blog posts or even, you know, writing encouraging notes that don't really come out and say much, you know, specifically? I, as I said before, learn as much as you possibly can, and then the interviewing the survivors, but then just practical things. Like, I have been able to talk to a couple ladies that I've worked with in the past and just encourage them to go to another room in the house, to steer clear of relational conversations, um, one that gets in her car and takes the kids for a ride, you know, just doing things like that. But very challenging, yeah. I've, I've had a, a, I've had to really get creative about how I think about helping. When I can talk to them, I do encourage that they don't diminish the power of prayer. Um, one of the verses that I think is key for domestic abuse is Mark 9, 29. They couldn't get the demon out, so they asked Jesus, what, why couldn't they? And his answer was, this one will only come out with prayer. And the devastating, horrible situations that I have heard in domestic abuse, the only way they ever improved, if they did, had to have been because of a movement of Christ in, in prayer is right behind that. It's the only explanation. And then the other, the other thing that I've thought of, and I've used this for my own life many times, I call it bricks without straw, and that is to encourage women that when... Um, Moses, when God heard the cries of the Israelites and then sent Moses to help rescue his people, um, it started with, with God hearing their grumbling and hearing their complaints, hearing their cries, and it says God heard, God had compassion on them. And then a few short verses later, <laughs> he's, he's instigating the guards to take away straw from the brick making and then encouraging them to make the, the um, yield of bricks even higher. So it just got harder. Um, and this pandemic is very much like that. It's like, even for some women who maybe have, were in the process of being able to leave their husbands and all of a sudden they can't, um, just to encourage them that God's rescue really looks difference than you might expect, but it doesn't mean he's not rescuing. Um, yes, he may be taking away some of the straw that it's been taking for you to make the bricks that you need to make, but his rescue plan is a promise. So just encouraging them with that, if I can, that's, that's, you know, those that I can talk to. 
Joy, do you have anything that you would be able to add to that? I know you're actively counseling. In fact, I think you said that your your caseload has, has gone up, unfortunately. So maybe do you have anything you might be able to share that would be helpful for our audience? Well, I so agree with that, Anne-Marie. It's like, if you guys have read my book, I don't think I would have made it out alive without the Lord. And I've been doing this a long time and I've worked with hundreds and hundreds of victims at this point. And what I find is that those who really know how to cling to him and hold on, things just happen for them and things change for them in a different way. But a lot of times it gets harder before it gets better. So that's the encouragement for them and those who are stuck in these situations right now. It may get harder, but God is a redeemer. He's going to, I've never seen him let down anybody who put their faith in him. And it just takes a mustard seed. So um, I think that's huge. And then, you know, just as how we can help them. I mean, call to peace. We're here on the front lines and we've got a lot of women. So we're able to help a lot of them financially. Those who we can help them with household bills. We don't, we have a very limited emergency fund, but you know, those kinds of things sometimes, especially those who are already out, you know, and they are facing um, economic hardships. So there are practical ways that we can help as well. Yeah, a tremendous resource, Call to Peace Ministries and PeaceWorks. Joy, I wonder if you take a turn and help us to speak to the woman who maybe has never even heard of the term safety plan. I know, again, it wasn't until I started to become familiar with domestic abuse awareness and prevention and care, I didn't even know what a safety plan was. And so I'd like for you maybe to take a few minutes to tell us what is a safety plan you know, what does it do for you? Why is it important? Um, And how can you go about creating one? I think that even as biblical counselors, that should be our our primary focus should always be safety. Even if there's never been a physical blow in the relationship. I had a woman one time I worked with, she was married for 30 years, never any physical injury. And one day she decided to tell him she didn't like something and he got a frying pan and almost killed her. So we don't, we always want to take the, the danger possibility very seriously. And so we talk to them and we do these interviews a lot of times to, to find out if they think there's any danger. There are things called lethality assessments, you know, that are online. And, and those of us who are advocates have access to, I know, Anne-Marie, you got that through our class. But just to try to help assess the level of danger. And so what happens is sometimes it's more dangerous for a victim to get out. Um, 75% of domestic violence homicides happen after she leaves. And a lot of times I've seen those situations. I've had two women that work with our ministry who were actually shot or one was, yeah, both of them were shot after leaving and there had never been a physical blow. So um, we want to make sure that they have a smart plan. So, you know, one of them was shot at her parents' house. Her parents actually perished. He shot them as well. And so what we want to do is help them make a plan. Where is a safe place to go that you don't put other people in danger? Where can you go to? Um, Even things as practical as uh, don't let him get you into a corner of a room that doesn't have an exit. Try to be near exits if you think you see him um, starting to get angry or looking dangerous. Um, have a code word with your kids. When I say this word, run next door, call 911. Encourage them to call 911. Have an extra set of keys somewhere so if he takes your car keys, you can still get out. Just really practical things like that in the beginning. If they can't get out, you know, in the short term, start making a long term plan. A lot of the women that we work with that can't get out, the reason they can't get out is financial. And so I've worked with women that took eight years to get out. They 
started a savings account. They went out and got a part-time job that turned into a full-time job later on. There are a multitude of safety plans online. I know Chris often refers to the one at Focus Ministries. That's focusministries1.org, I believe. Mm -hmm. And they have a really good one there. So if anybody's interested, um, it can give you all the practical things that you can do. All the coalitions against domestic violence also have safety plans, but that's just a crucial part when you're dealing with these situations number one priority safety uh, for these folks because you never know when it's going to go south and it can do it just like that. I think I saw Paula Silva actually join us uh, watching on one of these feeds from Focus Ministries and I adore their resources and that safety plan is pretty thorough and it's a great place for biblical counselors to start I think because it gives you it can it can educate you as you walk through. I was also thumbing through the IBCD domestic abuse handbook that we've mentioned a few times during this chat, and there is a safety plan template, I guess you could call it, in the handbook. Yes, I printed it out, and it, it's, I mean, I've never seen one. It looks pretty thorough to me, and so if you are a counselor, uh, this is, again, another reason why grabbing the handbook and the observation videos would be a great value to you because there are so many additional resources included in the handbook, not just the note pages where you're kind of tracking along with the videos, but resources like the safety plan, like a vocabulary lists, And gosh, it was just so interesting to peel through some of these resources and, and educate myself. I just thank you guys so much for working with IBCD so diligently to make this resource available for people who do have a heart and want to help. We're just about finishing up our time today. And gosh, I feel like we could probably sit here for a number of hours and, <laughs> and talk and go into great length. I think I'd like to take the remainder of our time together to really just highlight the various resources that Joy, Chris, and Anne-Marie, I'd be happy for you to talk about your book again, because we do have a number of people that weren't on at the beginning. And I think that that will help to equip people to leave this call and go out and explore and equip themselves with the resources you have available. So Joy, would you tell us a bit more about Call to Peace and the different facets of that ministry that you have to offer both women and victims of domestic abuse, but also the people helpers. So we have a two-pronged mission at Call to Peace Ministries. One is to provide practical assistance and counsel to victims of domestic abuse. So that means that we have obviously counseling. Um, we have advocacy, so one-on-one advocacy. Um, we are located in the, the Raleigh, North Carolina area, so we have local support groups here, but I believe we have about 20 across the nation that are meeting in other places, plus several small ones online through Zoom that may be just regional. And they use the curriculum, the workbook curriculum, the Call to Peace Companion workbook is basically a scripture-based study. And um, it was just born out of my own healing process that the Lord brought me through. I could not find good counsel. They re- really, nobody, nobody knew about domestic violence back in 1996 when I got out. There, it was just, there were like three books in the whole United States on the, on the subject. And I read them and, and they didn't offer healing. And I was like, but God's a healer. So he led me through an amazing process. And every uh, survivor that I've known that went, went through that healing process, he did the same for them. We provide practical assistance, so that may be here in the Raleigh area, actually coordinating them, help to get moved out of a situation, or just all sorts of practical things, babysitting while they're going for a job interview, helping with transportation, and we do have that emergency fund. The second part of our mission is to 
help educate people helpers. So we actually have a one-year online advocacy training that Anne-Marie took with Dr. Deborah Wingfield from House of Peace Publications. So anybody who really wants to dive into this work, um, this is not something you can take a seminar or a one-time like I'll take a class on it and I'm, I'm equipped. This is a specialty in my mind and it, it takes a long, long time to become an expert in this area. I don't even know. People are like, are calling me because I'm an expert, but there are times when I get really stumped. So maybe I'll call Chris or Anne-Marie or I'll call Dr. Deborah. There are just, this is one of those things that they're just, there's, there's no limit to what you will see and there's not a one size fits all approach. And we need each other. We need to take a team approach. And actually, Chris is coming, we hope, back <laughs> to North Carolina. We just, we just did a conference with Chris. It's called Wisdom Calls. And it's on, we've got like 20 hours of training there at calledtopeace.org. But we have him coming back to do um, a church-wide response, to, you know, building a church-wide response to domestic abuse, which we'll talk about developing a, a church-wide um, domestic violence policy and team. So we do things like that. We train pastors in our area. We do quarterly trainings. And so, um, and we train people to lead support groups. So I think that covers everything that we do at Call to Peace. You can learn more at our website and we would love to have you join the mission. Chris, now will you speak on, uh, you've got a lot of stuff going on. And so maybe you can talk first about some of the, the free content that you have, which is, I mean, a tremendous resource, and then maybe in some of your coaching programs. Yeah, so that was a, uh, our mission as well when we started PeaceWorks, when, when I actually was beginning my work in uh, graduate work in biblical counseling, trying to marry my two worlds, biblical counseling and my wor work with uh, batterers. I was like, joy, I found so few resources. And for us, when we were really trying to catalog and deliver the content that I already had, it became imperative that we needed free resources that were available to the public. And uh, one of the things that we did was the PeaceWorks podcast. I absolutely started that just on a shoestring. It still operates that way. Uh, it is probably the worst podcast uh, quality-wise in the world, but God has really blessed it. I know there are thousands of people that listen to the PeaceWorks podcast every week, and we love to deliver that content. And that's free every Tuesday at 6 a.m. that drops. And uh, you can find that on iTunes or Google Play. With that, we, we want to use that platform to reach as many people as we can. And I, I say all of my content's there. Uh, but if you want help organizing it, that's what our paid options are about. And we don't take donations at PeaceWorks. Everything we do is by service or product-based resources. If we raise money, we usually try to raise money and point it back towards Call to Peace or advocacy ministry. And uh, if you are interested in that piece, educationally, we have PeaceWorks University, which is our online membership site for people helpers. It started as just a way really to help me with all the phone calls I was answering. It, this is just, this is how I operate, guys, just out of necessity. I don't want to answer so many phone calls, so I built a website. And um, I really think, and I, I want to say this in a, a way that's somewhat humble, but I do think it's true. I think we now have the most robust collection of gospel-centered resources uh, in the world behind that paywall. And I know uh, Joy is in there and she can attest to it. We try to offer resources to our members weekly, whether it be a monthly masterclass, a monthly live Q&A on the subject with me, a monthly toolbox item. This year, we're actually doing live Zoom calls with just our members 
uh, reviewing the IBC observation videos and encouraging all of our members to purchase those and utilize those in their local church. So that's been really cool. You get to do a watch along. We watched, actually watched my first counseling case with Travis last night and did a live Q&A with the group. So uh, that's what we're doing for, for 2020. And uh, that's $20 a month or $200 for the year, which I think is a steal. And then I still travel all over the world when we're allowed to travel. I haven't been on the road. I know September is going to be crazy because everybody doing makeup conferences. But that's basically it. The book, Heart of Domestic Abuse. I also partnered, and I want to offer this to anybody because this is free. I partnered with the Southern Baptist last year to create, help create uh, Becoming a Church that Cares Well for the Abused. This is absolutely free at churchcares.com. It's uh, all an entire video course you can take uh, right now for, for free. And the book is just $2 through Lifeway. So no excuses now. I mean, when I first started, I had one cardboard box full of resources. And now we are just flush with good biblical resources and more every year, seemingly every month. So commercial, done. Well, Chris, we did have someone ask, and I was also thinking about it. You have Men of Peace, which is your coaching program for perpetrators. Mm -hmm. Is that something you're still doing? Is yeah, that going to so be available later in the year? We're actually in our current term with Men of Peace. We have changed Men of Peace slightly to accept more men, and our plan is to only run that once a year. And so uh, if you would like to get on the waiting list for Men of Peace, and we had quite a waiting list last year, uh, but if you'd like to get on the waiting list for that, be considered for that, then you can go to menofpeace.org, I believe it is, or yeah, and that you can sign up for uh, being considered for next year's group. But right now we've got a group of 20-some uh, guys that are working through the process together right now. Awesome. Thank you, Chris, for, for just putting that all in a nutshell for us. Now, Anne-Marie, would you, uh, you know, you already introduced the book slightly at the beginning of the conversation, but here on the tail end, would you uh, talk a little bit more about the book, what it's designed to do and how local uh, church bodies can, can utilize it? Yeah, but before I do, can I just go backwards just a minute yes. back to the IBCD resource? Yes. Um, I, I was very privileged to be a part of the production team that put that together. It was filmed in my home. You may recognize the bookshelves when you watch it <laughs> and co-wrote the handbook. And I've probably watched the nine hours. I've probably watched it four times now to develop that handbook. And I cannot tell you how good that is. I still stand in awe of what Joy and Chris and the others did to put that together in a good way. I mean, we were very frightful in the beginning of thinking what that could look like and what a mess it could be, but it came out so incredibly good. And I will also be hopefully, prayerfully, um, leading a group of women in our church through all nine hours and um, watching the videos for their training. So I can't recommend that enough. Um, the other book that I wrote was Help Her. It's a church-wide response for women in crisis. It's about the ministry that I have, that we have at our church in Matthews, North Carolina. I co-wrote it with my pastor, and it talks about a ministry that we have for caregiving that's made up of women that are slightly on the, what, I, what we call seasoned side of life, that have experience and wisdom, godly wisdom, because of those experiences, and they come alongside other women in crisis, any kind of crisis. But what I like to emphasize in the book is that you do not need to have a caregiving ministry to give care. 
a book I have not read yet, but I really am intrigued by. It's called Cobble Hair, uh, Beauty School or something like that. It's a story about a woman who goes into Afghanistan and she's American. She starts a, a beauty school and the women who come from the local area to take the classes are given this sort of freedom to be able to talk and take off um, the burqas and, and just be open. And so many friendships were built and relationships and secrets revealed. And it just got me thinking about, it doesn't matter where you are. You can be in line waiting for your children and turn around and just ask the woman next to you some questions and just get to know her. And, and maybe if you're a, a room mom and you see a child that's acting out, you know, maybe get together with that child's mom and get to know her. Are you a, are you a receptionist in a doctor's office? Um, are you a, a clerk in a grocery store? What can you do? What, how can you think creatively about um, engaging in people's lives? And that's all it really takes. Like I said, it doesn't take an official ministry. You don't have to have a degree. Um, Joy would say you're not experts, <laughs> and that's very important, and you can't consider yourself an expert, but you can certainly give care. You just need to be aware of your surroundings and the people around you. And, and in this time, again, you know, practice what kind of questions you can ask. Motivational listening, I guess, is what it's called, that, that would get at understanding another woman's world. Uh, I think we, we like to, uh, from the Midwest, we like to stay in our little, you know, don't enter my space kind of thing. But there's so many places and ways. And you know what? There are so many women that have been abused in some way that we have to do this. We just have to. We have to be a part of the rescue of the needy. And I just put one little um, thing on that. And, I, and it's so true. And I started helping people way before I knew what I was doing. So I'm not saying <laughs> you can't help because you can. But I will say that if you're entering into the work with a victim of domestic abuse, I would just say avoid controlling language. Try not to direct her. Tell her you need to do this. You need to do that. Um, what we want to do is empower them and give them options. And so I think that is one of the best ways that you can help because if you start telling them what to do, you're going to lose them. You'll lose their trust. You know, the average woman goes back seven times before getting out for good or, you know, things working out, We whatever may happen. But, you know, they're more likely not to come back to you again after they've gone back and then come back out again because they think, oh, she's going to think I'm a fool for going back. So they're not going to reach out. So just let them know that you're always there, that you're always willing to listen and that you're not judging them. Thank you for making that point, Joey. I think I remember that particular point from our previous conversation on the Hope and Help podcast about just like, oh, you should do this or you should do that just to avoid that type of language. And even in the observation videos, I remember Chris saying, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, so this is not what you said, please correct me. But I think you said something to the effect of when you're in a counseling room, you're the dumbest person in the room because the victim knows more about her situation than the counselor does. And the Holy Spirit knows more about her heart and the situation than anyone in the room. And so just to be mindful of how much you don't know, I think paired with the advice that, or the, the wisdom that Joy just shared, I think it's really powerful to remember as we approach one another care in this context without perhaps a whole lot of formal training. Yeah, if you think you've got all the information, probably ask a few more questions. It's, it's really, that's why I say the dumbest person in the room. I ask a lot of questions. And to me, especially in perpetrator work, offender work, questions are key. It, not because I need the information per se. Sometimes he needs to hear himself say it. 
and it's uh, it's helpful to get that data and gather that information and not rush ahead. And to Joy's point, real quick, I, I often say I think this is pertinent. Victims do not need another controlling person in their life. They already have one and they don't need a savior either. They already have one in Jesus. Mm -hmm. Our role is to neither be her rescuer or her controller, but to be an avenue, a conduit of grace to introduce and remind her of where her hope truly lies. Well, thank you. Wonderful points to end our conversation on. I cannot thank you guys enough for joining us tonight. Everyone on Facebook land, thank you so much for your comments, for your encouragements, for your questions. And I really hope this evening was a blessing to you. Before we let you go, I'd like to remind you to visit ibcd.org forward slash hope and help. There you can check out the show notes from today's episode. If you enjoyed today's conversation, why not subscribe to the podcast? That way you'll be notified when new weekly episodes release. Also, please don't keep the Hope and Help podcast a secret. If you know someone who could be encouraged by listening to this episode, please do them a favor by sharing it. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. Be sure to join us next time on the Hope and Help podcast.